What's up guys, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. In today's episode, I am going to be covering the horror story that is Evergrande. And the reason I'm doing that, of course, is that it is Halloween and it's I've just spent the afternoon with my kids and we did some trick-or-treating. And I thought, wow, what an appropriate story to go into. And that would be to cover all of that stuff that's going on in China at the moment that is threatening to pull down the entire Chinese property market and perhaps the wider financial system. And the big question on everyone's mind is, will this have a knock-on impact on our local markets, whether we're listening in from Ireland or the UK or the US or wherever in the world you happen to be listening in from. So today I'm going to be doing a deep dive into the company Evergrande and its founder to give you just a little bit of more context on what is going on when you're hearing it in the news. Now, why should you care? Well, a lot of people currently speculating that this could be China's Lehman moment. And by that, of course, they are referring to the 2008 collapse of Lehman Brothers, which triggered the global financial crisis. And uh, the big question, I guess, is will it happen again? Well, I guess you're just going to have to stay tuned as I dive into the episode. You are listening to Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, guys. Okay, so the Evergrande deep dive. Before I start, I just want to make a quick announcement. Uh, some of you might may have already received an email, but just to let those of you who are not aware know, I have started a free weekly online training workshop. Now, it's called the uh, Property Investor Roundtable, and uh, you are all very welcome to join in. It's every Monday afternoon. It's live over Zoom. And if you just want to join for some free training that I'm giving out and doing a quick Q&A, so bring any questions you have about property investment or whatever it is you'd like to ask. And if you cannot join the call, well, the live call, that is, you can easily catch up on the video, which will be available in my Facebook group behind the facade community. So if you want more details on that free training workshop, if you want to kind of register to actually join the call, you'll find details on my website. If you go into gavinjgallagher.com forward slash workshop, or alternatively, if you join the Facebook group, or if you remember already, you will find it in events. So let's get on with the show. And today we're talking about Evergrande and I've got quite a lot to cover. Firstly, I want to go into a little bit of background on the company and its founder. Then I'm going to be doing a little bit on its role in the Chinese market and the wider Chinese economy before going into sort of, I guess, what's happened in recent times, what's caused all of the problems that they're now facing. And then I'm going to be covering some of the warning signs that were actually out there before all of this happened. And if you were sort of looking in the right places, I guess you might have predicted some of this stuff was going to happen. And then finally, I'm going to cover the latest news and events as they try to rescue the company. And the big question is, will there be a risk of contagion and will the kind of the issues and the problems that they're suffering 
will that spread throughout the global economy um, it's it's kind of hard to tell but i'm going to give you my view on it now first of all i'm going to turn the clock back a couple of decades and just for those of you who are not familiar with the chinese market china chinese market basically um until 1979 was mostly an agricultural kind of communist society very poor very very inefficient um communism wasn't just not working from them from an economic point of view as it a lot of people would have seen and it goes back to i mean there's obviously the the war there and the the chinese uh, you know communist party taking over after the uh war of independent or the war of the civil war of china in 1949 and mao took over and uh the uh, the the uh, i suppose the best way to put it anyway is that in 1979 they suddenly realized that this econ economic system that they had was not working and they adopted to a kind of free market reforms as they were calling it and it has been very very effective in taking about 800 million people out of poverty in china and what this has caused was this massive massive growth of cities across china and with you know obviously if 800 million people are coming out of poverty they need 800 million homes and 800 million people moving from a mostly agricultural society into cities meant that there was pretty much all new homes having to be built there was no existing stock because people were leaving rural communities to go and work in cities so what better business to be in than a in a situation like that than to be in a real estate business because you know 800 million people looking for places to live is going to be a lot of houses units and uh, apartment buildings and stuff needing to get built so around about this same time there was the founder of Evergrande his name is Xu Jiayin or I've actually seen it pronounced Hoi Kayan so I don't know whether that's Cantonese or uh, Mandarin or whatever it is but the, he is the founder of Evergrande, and the guy today is in or around his 60, I think he's 63 years of age. And he basically went on to, he, he came from total poverty. I mean, he was one of those people living in the sort of rural communities. He came from a, a family, uh, like basically a farmer, uh, and his mother, uh, when he was eight months old, his mother died from I think it was sepsis or something, some sort of pretty easily treated um, thing, but they just didn't have any money at all. And so his mother died from something that was probably wouldn't have been too difficult to treat had they had money. And uh, anyway, he was born in 1958. Today he is 63 years of age. And around about his 20th birthday or 21st birthday was the time when this 1979 reforms in the market took place. And so he was there, very smart guy. Now, by all accounts, he did his, in, in 1978, just a year before the market reforms came in, he sat his, they call it the Gao Cow, which is the effect, effectively the same as the A-levels in the UK or the leaving certificate here in Ireland. And out of 10 million students that did it that year, he placed number three in 10 million people. So we're talking about a pretty bright guy. And he graduated and started working as an employee in uh, a firm. I can't remember what kind of firm it was, but very, very hardworking guy. Super hard driven, 
and um, promoted quite quickly, moved up through the ranks of the organization. But like so many entrepreneurs, he kind of bristled at some of the um, issues that he was seeing. So he went off and helped them develop a uh, the company that he was working for. He helped them do a big property development um, project in some part of China. And he made them a total profit of $31 million. And, uh, you know, for your employer to make $31 million off of your hard work, you kind of it's not unreasonable to turn around and say can i have a piece of the pie because at the time his salary was five thousand dollars and or the equivalent of and he just made them 31 million so it wouldn't be too much to ask for a little bit of a pay rise and what did they do they said no and like so many interesting sort of entrepreneurs stories that's how they start out it's they recognize the that that's just simply not fair they want a piece of the action they weren't getting it so off they go and start their own firm. So in 1997, he started his own firm, Evergrande. He was 39 years of age. So anyone who is in their kind of 20s and they're thinking that they're, you know, they need to make moves and get moving quicker. He was 39 years of age when he began the company for the very first time. And so it gives you some hope that it's not too late to be starting at the age of 39. Now, he was setting off against much, much bigger, much, much wealthier developers. Competition was absolutely brutal. But because uh, basically, and this is the, the, the same that everyone faces, is that you're out there, you're looking, to for, you're looking for land opportunities to develop. And the same piece of land that you're looking at is the same piece of land that these other guys with much, much deeper pockets are looking at. So you've got to be very aggressive. You've got to move quickly. You've got to be good at what you do. And he was obviously all of that. Now, he was very, very hungry and he didn't have any money. So when he started out, he borrowed every single penny to get started. And he found a former industrial uh, land, piece of land. And he does, he had this scheme designed up for uh, lots and lots of apartments. I don't know the exact number, but what he did was he actually pre-sold the entire lot of them in just two hours and he made himself a cool 12 million dollars on that two hour sales uh, sort of drive campaign so he was well on his way very quickly that was in 1997 1998 so after nine years of rapid expansion up to around about the year 2006 by that stage the company had amassed assets of 1.2 billion and he had debt of about a billion so company was worth in or around 200 million dollars by after 10 years or nine years of hard work and he decided at that point in time that it was time to develop the company uh, bigger make it um, instead of sort of focusing on the local area that he was he wanted to go national with the company and he had this target in his mind of growing Evergrande across the Chinese nation and to make it basically 20 times larger than its current size in just three years. So by 2009, that was his plan. Now, along the way, got a little bit interrupted because 2008 came along. Now, China was not impacted as badly as the rest of the world when, when it came, when the crash came. But it did interrupt his plans and he had initially thought about listing on the stock exchange. That was knocked on the head at the time. And so we had to go to some private people and borrow money. But he did manage to do it. And his, his modus operandi was pretty much the same as that very first deal. 
you find cheap land, you build um, apartments as cheaply as possible, pre-sell them all, and then you take the profits from that uh, campaign and you pay down, instead of paying down debt, you just keep buying more land to continue growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And he had a strategy, a uh, slogan that he went by. And he used to, it's obviously a Chinese word, but it means quite literally three highs and one low. And what he means by that is high debt, high leverage, high turnover, low cost. And the strategy now, to be fair, you know, he's done very well for himself. So the strategy was working very, very well for many, many years. And in 2009, Evergrande went public on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and the value jumped in that period. And as I mentioned, 2006, he was worth, uh, it was worth 1 billion and, uh, and his, um, his value of his shares were, or the company was worth about 200 million when you take off the debt. Um, in 2009, when the market, uh, when, they, when they went on the market, the value of the business shot up 34% in the first day of trading, and it was worth $10 billion by the end of the day. And Shu's personal stake in the company was 68%. So straight away, the guy was now worth $6.8 billion. So certainly worked for him, and uh, he was well on his way <laughs> to being a billionaire player in the Chinese property market. Now, it does appear to me anyway, that this newfound wealth triggered, well, it certainly appears to have triggered this ego-driven buying spree. And it's something very, very similar to what Donald Trump did back in the 80s when he made a, did a couple of very, very successful moves and started making lots of money. And he just went bonkers and started buying up everything everywhere and that's where all of his problems created and it's not dissimilar here uh, because Shu went off and bought a football club followed by he launched a spring a bottled spring water company he bought a plastic surgery and health company he bought into tourism finance and even the automobile industry and the company grew over the next five years after 2009 it grew to over 100 billion in, um, in assets and debt. And it was around about this time that he changed his strategy. He decided that the three highs, one low was going to be flipped on its head. And the new strategy was three lows, one high. So it was now to be low debt, low leverage, low cost, but high turnover. Now, in spite of the fact that his new slogan was low debt, low leverage, the very same year that this new slogan came into force, the debt in the company went from 82 billion to 113 billion. So you can see how the model works. It's basically just keep buying property, keep on developing property, but no, don't pay down any debt. Just keep on buying more land with the profits and it, it continues to grow your business bigger and bigger and bigger, but so does your debt. And it's a... You know, it's working fine while the market is rising, but as soon as you you know, head into any kind of a headwind or any kind of a problem in the market, that's when you, you, know, you come a cropper and, uh, and it can go very badly wrong for you. Now, in the middle of all this, I mentioned all those different companies, those different industries that he was getting into. In 2018, Evergrande entered the tech sector and in particular the electric vehicle sector, and they launched a brand called Hengqi. 
Now, just to give you an idea of the growth rates in China in the stock market and stuff like that, within two years of this company being established, in June 2020, so it's just a little over a year ago, the value of the company went from 10 billion to, get this, 90 billion by April of this year. So it rose by 80 billion US dollars. Now, this is all the actual uh, Chinese currency is the RNB, but in this particular case, I'm, I'm converting everything to US dollars. So from June 2020 through till April 2021, the company rose in value from 10 billion to 90 billion. Now, something that's just to give you an idea around the speculation and all that stuff that's going on, a value of 90 billion made this company substantially more than the value of Ford Motor Car, uh, the motor company. And yet it had not sold a single car. It was just all kind of a concept. And um, so eventually people kind of figured out that this was massively overvalued and the stock has since crashed back and it is now 95% less than what it was. So it's fallen right, right back down. And now that is not the only problem that they are dealing with. Around about 2020, everything started to kind of go badly wrong for them. Although raising, rising from 10 billion to 90 billion, they would be forgiven for thinking that their problems were all about to be solved. The reality is that it was around about this time that the Chinese financial authorities started to recognize that there's some major risks in the, um, in the, in the economy. And it is because it is highly leveraged and they just thought that this whole reliance on debt and the fact that everybody everywhere is borrowing money, the people are borrowing money to buy the apartments, the companies that are building them are, bo are borrowing all this money. They considered it to be what they called a systemic risk. And so they introduced these new rules that were aimed at basically taking the leverage out of the market and just to get it into a much more stable situation. The problem is when you introduce these things after years of you know not having these rules in place. So what they did was they brought in the three red lines in August of 2020, so just over a year ago. And the three red lines are, line number one is an, a debt to asset ratio. And what they put in was that there was going to be a ceiling of 70%. So your debt could never go above 70% of your assets. The number two red line was that there was going to be a debt to equity ratio capped at 100%. So you could not have debt that was greater than the equity of the company. And then finally, red line number three was a, a cash sort of on hand to cover short term debt. And it had to be you had to have for every one dollar of uh, short term debt that you had, you had to have one dollar of cash on hand. So the aim of the three red lines, as I mentioned, was just to reduce this reliance on debt and make the economy more stable. But in fact, what it's gone and done is kind of the opposite because it is introduced, it's like closing the stable door after the horse is bolted basically, because for years you've had a system where it was all built on debt and suddenly you introduce these three red lines and what it has done to Evergrande is forced them into a kind of impossible situation. When the three red lines were analyzed on, on Evergrande 
and this is just on the public market information it doesn't cover any kind of off-market deals that there might be and, and by all accounts there's quite a lot of them out there but instead of line number one being 70 percent they were actually at 82 percent so already that ceiling had been breached by 12 percent uh, line number two was massively over the 100 percent ratio of debt to equity they were actually at 199 percent at that point and then the third line and that was one dollar for every one dollar of debt instead they had just 40 cent for every one dollar of debt so by all accounts you can see the problems there they are massively massively beyond their sort of um, the rules and this meant that overnight Evergrande not only had to abandon the business model that's been you know working for them for years but they're not allowed to borrow money any longer and not only are they not allowed to borrow any money but they actually have to now deleverage their current positions and for anyone who for someone who was supposed to be super well connected as Shu was supposed to be this does seem to have caught them out unexpectedly so they called a meeting uh, in the company and they immediately decided to cut prices on all of their sales all of their campaigns all of their projects by 30 percent immediately across all 600 of their development projects and that their target was to bring in 15 billion dollars a month in sales and that was the that was the plan make these huge discounts and flood you know get get loads of people in buying 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 and you know you can't everyone loves a bargain as they say and so that was the that was the basic sort of premise to start to fix this problem bring in as much cash as possible through massive uh, discounts and that would have worked except along came the covid pandemic in the middle of all this and so there was lockdowns and stuff to deal with and so they didn't have the buoyant market that they were hoping for but even worse was to come and because of the troubles that they were experiencing they decided that they would send a letter to the um, financial authorities seeking assistance to kind of help them get out of this deleveraging situation to help stabilize them but somebody who obviously wasn't too friendly with them leaked this letter to the media now Evergrande has since claimed that the letter is a forgery and that they never sent it and blah 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 but the market did not believe that and the letter requesting assistance for restructuring triggered a well as soon as it was put made public it triggered a 68 percent fall in the stock market value of Evergrande so let's just recap here in 2020 the Evergrande balance sheet says that it is worth 300 billion in assets and it has 300 billion in debt and all of the assets are mostly sort of tied up in land which the only way you'll profit from is by taking on more debt to actually build the buildings that has to go on the land and so you can see how the trouble is starting to brew now i'm going to stop here for a moment because there were warning signs prior to these events and uh, this is a, some interesting sort of just a little bit of trivia around this and way back in 2012 so not long after they had actually gone public a chap called andrew left and andrew worked for a company called citron research and they were sort of based i think in the hong kong market and he wrote an article that accused evergrande of all sorts of financial shenanigans 
And he said that their financing style was basically a big uh, Ponzi scheme. And so he called them out. And he basically, they were a research firm. It was their job to highlight these kind of situations. But what happened? Well, what would you expect happens when you take on a well-connected billionaire Chinese property guy in his home market? Probably perhaps not the wisest move. The Hong Kong financial regulators launched launched an immediate investigation, not into Evergrande, but into Citroen Research. And they found the company guilty of reckless speculation and they banned them from being involved in the market for five years. And I think I've read somewhere that Andrew, um, the guy who wrote the report, was just had no idea how well it connected this guy was and how the retribution for what they did was going to play out. So he wishes he had never done it. But interestingly enough, a couple of years later, another company called GMT Research, they wrote an article and what they were doing actually was not targeting directly Evergrande, but they were targeting PricewaterhouseCooper, Evergrande's auditors. And they basically accused the auditors of being asleep at the wheel. Because what P or what GMT had gone out and done was they visited 40 of the 600 projects that Evergrande had ongoing. And in the process of doing that, they concluded that there was massive write downs that should be taking place. And they estimated that there was like something like 23 billion worth of write downs that should take place. Now, in around this time, the equity in Evergrande was actually only around 7 billion. So this 23 billion write down was equivalent to about three times the total equity that there was in the stock market. So it was a big issue. And this is actually, from what I've been reading and re- in researching for, for this podcast, this is actually a problem that's taking place all over China. And this is one of the reasons why I worry about the Chinese market and, and the potential for the entire market to kind of collapse, is that failed projects and any kind of losses are simply not acknowledged or ever written down. And so these guys went, when they went off on their kind of investigation, they found there was abandoned hotels that, you know, had holes in the roof and and simply, you know, it was like an abandoned property, nobody living in it, nothing. But it was in their books, fully valued as a fully occupied hotel. They also found that there was um, like 500,000 car parking spaces were being put in the books at full value when in fact they were just sitting there not collecting any revenue and they were basically they were acting as if they had 500,000 a a car park business worth 500,000 but in fact it was just spaces that were associated with apartments that were just sitting there and so they were kind of double accounting for them or whatever so a lot of falsification as far as these guys were concerned and they were basically calling out Price Waterhouse for saying you guys are auditing these guys and yet you you haven't raised any warning signs. You haven't highlighted any of this. And so what was going on? Well, five years later, GMT went and put out another report. And so a full five years has passed. Nobody had a look at Evergrande. Nobody questioned Price Waterhouse, but they've had a look. And five years later in 2020, there was absolutely no change. But in that five year time, the debt had now grown by an additional 200 billion. Now, this is 
not a unique situation has to be said back in 2001 in the US there was a huge energy company I'm not sure if you guys will all remember this because it's quite a few years back now two decades ago I remember it quite well and this company was called Enron and you can actually I think there is there's a documentary on Netflix called the smartest guys in the room I think it is and it's all about Enron but Enron went bankrupt in 2001 with basically zero warning and they lost 74 billion overnight pretty much and it led to the actual downfall of the audit firm Arthur Anderson and Arthur Anderson at the time was one of the world's largest multinational corporations and they just disappeared overnight because what they were found guilty of was shredding all this uh, evidence that they were supposed to be they were supposed to be out there you know checking all the you know looking in under the hood and checking all the finances and, and they basically get they get too friendly with the management of um, of the company so Enron all these guys they were all best buddies playing golf together all that kind of stuff and so they kind of cover up for other for each other and anyway Enron out of the blue gone wallop and so back to Evergrande and it's uh, it's a, a little bit similar it seems because it not there's, there has been no warnings whatsoever, except for these two independent kind of reports where people were kind of calling them out. There has been nothing from Price Waterhouse Cooper. There has just been this, you know, this clean bill of health that yeah, everything's perfectly fine. Another year, another set of accounts that have been given the all clear, and not not so long ago, uh, it was announced that actually we're going to have some difficulties meeting our obligations. So it seems very quickly it's gone from a situation where everything's perfectly fine to suddenly oh wait we've got actually we actually have some problems here so it does seem like there has been a bit of obfuscation and so back to the current situation Evergrande currently owes 310 billion now they say they have this year alone they have over 600 million in interest payments to make and that is just before the end of 2021 so how are they going to pay all of these well, that's what everyone wants to know. The first sign of trouble was not long ago, about a month ago, um, they had a interest payment on a bond of 83 million. And it was due on a certain date and they missed it. They didn't pay it. And so now the only reason that this didn't cause this major problem straight away is that written in the small print of this particular bond payment was that there was a 30-day grace period. And what they did was they let, they ran out the clock to 29 days and then they paid it. Now, that might seem like, okay, everything's fine. They paid their debt. What's the big deal? But the reality is, is that to me certainly looks like the classic buying time move and does suggest that there's an awful lot more trouble uh, you know, in the background. And with 600 million more to pay just this year alone, next year they have 3.5 billion to pay. So it's going to be interesting how this all plays out. Now, another division of Evergrande, they actually have a wealth management division, which sells uh, these wealth products, these financial products to customers. And they announced to their customers that due to liquidity problems, they were unable to pay. And instead, what they were doing is they were offering property assets in lieu of cash. So imagine you've gone and you've invested 100,000 into this wealth product. You're getting 12% a year in interest. Sounds like a good deal. Your 100,000 will become 112,000. 
But instead of getting your 112,000 at the end of the year, they come along and say, hey, why don't you go and take these three car parking spaces that are worth 112,000 and just take them instead of cash. So not a particularly um, good move to make and not very attractive in the eyes of all of these people. And so this spooked the market. And what it's done is it's made everyone just a little bit nervous of not just the market, not just Evergrande, but the actual overall market. So Evergrande had recently announced that because of media reports, so it's easy to blame the media rather than themselves, but they said because of media reports that their monthly, uh, their year-on-year -year monthly sales have actually fallen by 97%. So all of the millions that they were usually getting every month in sales and pre-sales on their developments, there are actually haven't been able to do any of them. They're, they're, they've only raised 3% of the usual 100%. So instead, uh, this is starting to look like a bit of a disaster for them. And what they've actually got, I understand they have about 1.2 million apartments pre-sold already. And so they actually have to go ahead and build out these apartments in order to satisfy the payments that they've received from all of these investors. And... Um, it's you can see how this is all going so look they have they have billions of debt to pay down so they thought look let's go and sell off some of our larger assets and we'll be able to do this so they put their property services division on the market for sale and another uh, property group in china called hobson they agreed to buy the evergrand property services business for 2.5 billion dollars and since they, they agreed all the terms and stuff like that, the deal has fallen through. And it has fallen through. Reports suggest that the reason it's fallen through is because Evergrande wanted it to be basically paid within seven days. No questions asked. Here's the assets. You know, you're buying this company as, as you find it, that you're not allowed to look under the hood. You're not allowed to do any due diligence. Just go and buy it. Give us the 2.5 billion. Take what we're giving you. And that's it. No checking under the hood. Now, what do you expect in a situation like that? Hobson's have pulled out of the deal or what actually happened was Hobson's were saying, this is what we expect. We expect to be able to do due diligence. And Evergrande pulled out of the deal because of the, that those terms. And so it looks all looks a little bit sort of strange and a little bit shaky. The next thing we have is the Evergrande headquarter building was put up for sale at a price of $1.7 billion. Now, the only issue with that is that the main tenant is who? None other than Evergrande. And so you, if you are a investor buying $1.7 billion worth of a corporate headquarter building and the tenant who's selling you the building is currently being speculated as potentially going out of business, and collapsing and all that then you're building your nice shiny new building that you've just bought with your huge tenant that's paying you millions a year in rent is going to be gone and so you're going to be sitting looking at an empty office building and probably zero rent and so that sale has also fallen through so you can see how these issues are all starting to mount up on uh, Evergrande. Now, the latest news I heard is that the local authorities have been told to, quote, prepare for collapse. And so it's it's not looking good for shoe. 
and the, he as the founder apparently the financial authorities have told him that there will be no bailout until he has used his own wealth to actually um, prop up the company and so what's happened over the last couple of years just to kind of go into some of the detail he as the company was growing and growing and growing it was paying very generous dividends out and in the last five years alone he has taken more than five billion out in dividends five billion dollars in dividends and his wealth when the market when the company was at the top of its value his personal wealth was 42 billion dollars so he was one of the wealthiest men in china and five billion in dividends alone so the authorities have turned around and said you know we are not going to bail you out just like that there's a thing called moral um risk i think it's called or moral hazard is what they call it and what that is is where if you bail out people then they'll continue to take risks and this is where the chinese financial authorities are trying their best to kind of stabilize the market they believe that mor moral hazard has gotten too crazy if these billionaire well-connected owners if they all think that anytime they run into trouble they'll be bailed out well then none of them take any of this stuff serious they basically there's a no loss situation you can go and borrow billions and you'll make lots more money and you'll be able to buy more helicopters and boats but if there is a problem well then the authorities will bail you out so there's no kind of floor um, as far as they're concerned so this is what they're trying to prevent now and so this is why the market is starting to kind of talk about contagion because it's not just Evergrande that is being affected any longer because of this the three red lines all property companies were going through this but because of Evergrande's very public issues it has shot it has caused a bit of a shaking in the confidence in the market in general and a company that's completely unconnected a company called Fantasia properties I think it is they recently announced that they are unable to pay their obligations now with only a month before that they had made an announcement to the market that they were in perfect financial sort of um, health that they had lots of cash on hand and there would be absolutely no problem meeting their obligations one month later they announced that they are basically insolvent and this is because the company has gotten caught up in all of this uh, contagion and you've got people that are valuing property interests in companies at much much lower so their equity went down and when their equity goes down then the three red lines suddenly get badly impacted and they have to go and they have to deleverage even further they have to you know get rid of debt and they have to sell down property at cheaper prices so it's kind of this death spiral that they go into and it also is making the buyers of property out there it's making them all very very nervous as well and so people have stopped buying property and so it seems there's kind of this shaky start to a property collapse in the in the uh, in the chinese market now something to know about the chinese market it is currently worth the the chinese property market is currently worth 52 trillion dollars that is more than double the value of the u.s market and so when you think about that and when you think about the fact that people are getting nervous and everything like that you can just see how big this could be so you have to think about the entire system and what they mean by systemic risk is when sentiment starts to impact kind of broadly the entire sector 
And at the moment, what you have is a system that is built on trust and that, that the promises that people make to each other will be kind of carried out. So if I lend money to you and I tell you I'll pay you on such and such a date, if you, you rely that that's true, that I will pay you on that date, and you might have other obligations that you're saying, well, I owe that money, but Gavin's going to pay me on this particular date, so I'll have the money from him and then I'll pay this other guy. You can see how... When a company like Evergrande goes under, there's going to be so many other companies that are expecting money from Evergrande and suddenly that's not going to come through. You're going to have people in construction, you're going to have contractors, you're going to have suppliers, you're going to have all of this stuff that we're expecting to get paid that suddenly are not going to get paid. You're going to have banks that we're expecting to get paid, can't get paid. Investors that are invested in bonds and stuff expecting to get their money back, can't get their money back. And it turns into this domino effect. And so uh, this is where the systemic risk is. And this is now the Chinese financial authorities, they're out there saying that this risk can be managed. But anytime you hear something like that, it is usually the kind of a warning sign that something much, much worse is coming because it's exactly what was said by Ben Bernanke, I think it was, way back in 2008 during the financial crash when he said that the mortgage sort of crisis that was underway was manageable. And of course, the entire US system nearly crashed. So these guys have a tendency to try to kind of keep everyone calm by saying like, it's perfectly fine to manage this. But it does seem like we're heading towards some sort of a collapse, whether they're able to kind of bring the, you know, not allow it to completely collapse i think there are going to be a number of companies that do go under in the process now that's not just the end of the story it's not just some property market that's related only to china you've got to understand the the kind of the scale and the size of the chinese market in terms of the commodity markets you've got there are 40 cities under construction around the world at the moment, if you exclude China. There are 40 cities under construction. That's in Africa and India and all sorts of places. Now, when you actually add China to that number, it adds more than 500 cities under construction to that list. So 40 cities being built globally, China alone, 500 cities under construction. The numbers are just staggering. And so you can just see how this is starting to impact on everything. I'll give you another statistic here that just blew my mind when I saw it. The amount of concrete that has been poured in China in just the last three years alone, that is more than the entire amount of concrete poured in the US in the entire hundred years of the 20th century. So all of the buildings built in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas, Texas, you know, the entire country of the US over 100 years does not add up to what has been poured in three years in China. So you can imagine when a company like Evergrande collapses it's and, and the potential for it to have this domino effect it is not just the property market we're talking about. We're talking about the commodity market, the all of the ingredients that go into concrete, all of the steel, all of the glass, all of the timber, all of the stuff around the world that is being sold to China. If that cannot be paid for, or if that 
if they stop needing it because they have to kind of freeze everything for now you can imagine what that could do to commodity prices or the people that were making money from selling into china or or whatever so this whole thing i don't want to spook people but it is halloween but this whole thing just shows you that there is a potential for this thing to grow legs and for it to go much much bigger than you can kind of imagine at the moment and that is how the lehman brothers collapse happened when Lehman Brothers was taken down, we were all sitting there saying, you know, what's the big deal? It's some bank in America. But it owed billions to other banks. Those banks, when they couldn't get paid, couldn't pay their investors. Those investors then had problems. And it has this domino effect that just spreads throughout the entire system. And that ended up crossing the Atlantic and affecting us here in Ireland, affecting the UK, affecting the rest of the world. And we ended up in the Irish system, we ended up in a, you know, basically an eight or nine year recession as a result of it. So this could impact us now. China and the US dollar, slightly different. The US is far more integrated into the global economy and certainly the European economy and the English and Irish economies. But still in all, I do just have a little bit of concern that this could just potentially be the little bit of a push that we need to start heading in a negative sentiment kind of direction and as i said before in one of my podcasts everything is based on sentiment and if you have got a market that is um starting to you know we have had quite a couple of years now a very strong growth and all it needs is something to trigger a reversal of that sentiment and that could be the end of the of the run that we've had and anyway, look, with all of these things, it's it's difficult. I just, I do think back to, I, I got badly impacted by the 2008 crash and I watched it all happening in real time. So I, just at the moment, what I'm seeing happening in China just has a, f- a familiar feel to it. And I'm not trying to spook anyone. I do think you can kind of, there are different, um, there are different drivers driving our markets now. You know, certainly in Ireland and the UK, it's there's a lot of property related supply and demand imbalances so i do think people will continue to need property but there are a few people out there that i've been speaking to who think that the prices have gotten a bit frothy so could be that the strong run that we've had is going to slow down and it'll be interesting to see so anyway just the i suppose the main message from me as is always the case is just to be careful to be patient and to have some discipline around your uh, due diligence because you have no idea what to expect so that's it guys that is the show i hope you enjoyed it thank you for tuning in to another episode of behind the facade if you enjoyed it or found it useful please take a moment to leave a review over on itunes or indeed share it with a friend this really helps the podcast grow and reach more people If you have any questions, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media under my handle, Gavin J. Gallagher. And you can stay up to date with all the projects I am working on by joining my tribe. Do that by adding your name and email over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. That's all for now. See you back here next week. (music)